0: Well, I was uh, out last Sunday, and Byron Wheatley did a fantastic job, and I just want to uh, thank him for that. Now, he's out of town this weekend, but you let him know that I said that, but you also need to let him know that I'm a little, a little bit upset with him as well. He preached a short message last Sunday and set me up for failure today, amen? And so uh, I, will be, I will be on point, but I'm thankful to be back. Thank you for letting my family and I take a vacation last week. Uh, we were in the lovely state of Florida uh, on the beach. I love the beach. Just something about the beach that just uh, just refreshes me. And so I, I'm excited. I'm refreshed this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you open your Bible, it's the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, because he's a short guy, right? Nehemiah chapter 10. And we'll get back there. And as you're going there, uh, we are almost at the end of this series. And some have asked me, man, you, you preach a long series sometimes. Why don't you go on to something else? And, and I want you to know that I, I, I would love to. But I have, I have concluded this. I think a steady diet of God's Word in books is the best thing for us as believers, right? So we're able to get the truth out of the text itself— and so there'll be times when I do jump around a topic or a special day uh, as an Easter Sunday, but I just think this is healthy for us to do this in a in a series where we're unpacking the text together. But we're almost done, and then we're going to jump into, as Byron mentioned last week, the book of 1 Peter in a series called Different. And so uh, if you want to get an A in the class over the next uh, month as we step into that series, go ahead and start reading 1 Peter, all right? And we'll tackle some hard stuff, some some, some stuff that's going to challenge our our minds, but also our hearts, and challenge our homes as well. And so I hope that you will read ahead and be excited about that series. It's a great summer series because it opens the door for us to invite more people that can be a part of it because the way the first Peter is written, there's something for everybody in first Peter. Okay, amen? All right, you got to wake up with me. Yesterday, there's a group of us, that just want to brag on, that washed cars yesterday for moms and for our community. And if you were one of those people, thank you for doing that. Our youth showed up yesterday and they washed a lot of cars and served jesus yesterday so as as much as i want to pick on these guys over here they're a a good group of people okay and so uh, i also want to thank my son for getting me wet 17 times also in the midst of of yesterday all right so we're back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10 is really a continuation of a, of a month-long renewal that the nation of Israel, the Jews, have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. They're, they're undertaken in the seventh month of Jewish calendar, this, this covenant re- renewal. And that's really what we're looking at today. But it kind of happens in ways. There's the awareness of it. The Mosaic law is read in Nehemiah chapter 8. And the people are convicted, and they're beginning to be mourning. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Let's, let's, let's add that later on because today's a, a sacred day, or joy, and so the joy of the Lord's going to be our strength. And so then they could pause on in Nehemiah after chapter 9, and then we start getting into this, this moment of repentance, confession we talked about two weeks ago that led to repentance. And then we get to really the, the nuts and bolts of what they are repenting about and what they are recommitting to, all right? Nehemiah chapter 10 is a beautiful outline of, of a covenant renewal. It's basically a covenant renewing the covenant. Does that make sense? All right. A covenant they're making as a group of people to renew the Old Testament Mosaic Law covenant. You see in Abraham and the patriarchs and on down ultimately to Jesus. And we'll get to that at the very back end of the message this morning. So it's a beautiful picture and it's really It's really important. It's really a picture of the same kind of issues that we need to recommit every day, okay? I'm going to show you that in the text this morning. If you have a worship guide, there's going to be only five sentences today. Like, whoa, that means a short sermon. Probably not, okay? Five sentences. If you're at home with us today, grab a notepad, and I want to give you five sentences as we go through the message and some notes to take down as well. I do want to read, as the beginning of the text, I want to take you back to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, and then we're going to jump into chapter 10. In just a second. Nehemiah 9, verse 2 says, And the Israelites separated themselves. Because they realize this. The word holiness means that God is utterly pure. He, there's, there's, there, he's, he's morally right, right? But it also means that God is separate. Y'all with me, right? He's He's not like us. Like He's not like you. He's, 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 he's other than us, all right? And as a result of that, as we looked two weeks ago, the call is that you be holy for the Lord your God is holy. So there's some separateness, verse 2 of chapter 9. And the Israelites separate themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And then you get to chapter 10. And the first little bit of chapter 10, the first 27 verses, I will not read all those names. Like, you know, like preachers, we, get the, we have to act like we know how to pronounce these words. I have no idea how to pronounce some of these words, okay? All right? Can I just be honest with you? Uh, I had a professor tell me one time, he said, just say it with all the confidence you have in the world, and nobody will know any different, all right? And so sometimes these words, these names get out there. Like, I'm not going to go there. But you're going to mark, if you want to go through and count, there are 83 different names of people who signed this covenant to renew the covenant, Okay? These are the leaders. These are the priests, the Levites, the, the local governors, the people, leaders of Jerusalem came together and said, I'll put my name to that, okay? That, that itself is impressive to me, okay? So it's, it's not like just a couple of people saying, you know what? Yeah, we probably should change some things. The people are like, no, 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 no. We need to change some things. We need to recommit ourselves back to the covenant relationship that we have with God because we've broken that covenant. The Old Testament covenant, we've broken that now." If you're in the room thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me because this is not Old Testament. I'm not a Jew, and maybe I'm a Gentile, and and it doesn't really apply to me. I promise you that that the significance of this text is going to hit you between the eyes, as it did me over the last two weeks. Okay, So as you get there, Nehemiah chapter 10, I want to pick up in verse 28. All right, Y'all with me? Say "Uh uh-huh. So the rest of the people, not just the 83... The rest of the people, includes the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all, again, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 2, who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. So they, they, they separated from, and they, they, they also committed to, you're going to see this text, go from to, all right, from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. Psalms 119, verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I'm a a, a simple man. Y'all know that, right? I'm not a very complicated person. Most of y'all realize that by now. I'm a simple man. Thank God that God's law, His Word, gives light and understanding to all alike. If you are an intellectual mind, thank God God gives understanding to you. If you are a simple mind, like myself, thank God, God's word through his spirit enlightens you to understanding. Verse 29, Nehemiah chapter 10. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter in, this is weird, they enter to a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, when you read that word, curse and oath, like what is it talking about? The Old Testament law, listen very carefully, was predicated on this understanding that there would be blessings in obedience and curses in disobedience. All right? Or... Significant repercussions if disobedient. We have to think about back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses is commanding Israel before they go to Promised Land. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Therefore, Moses says, choose life that you and your offsprings, your kids, your descendants may live. So, he, they, verse 29 of chapter 10 says, Enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given to Moses by Moses, a servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments, all the commandments. I'm stuck on all the commandments of the Lord, our God, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes, right? We're talking about a covenant this morning. See, a covenant's very different. I've mentioned this many times over the last month, month and a half, the loose contract. Most of us view our relationship with God on uh, a contract basis. We think, well, as long as it's convenient for me, I will read my Bible in the morning. As long as it's comfortable for me, I'll spend time with prayer. But if something other, other than, comes up, something better or more appealing comes up, then I'll bump God down the line. It's a loose contract, right? The problem with that understanding of Christianity, the problem with that understanding of God is nowhere in the Bible does it reference anything like that loose contract. In fact, this, this word covenant is really a, a word that we don't use much anymore. It's, it's kind of an old archaic word, even in some ways a legal word, right? And so we kind of just dismiss it as a casual relationship. Listen carefully. But friend, God does not want a casual relationship with you. He wants all of you or none of you. I, I think about Revelation chapter 3 In in the church, Laodicea had this lukewarm relationship, and and, and Jesus says, "I I would rather you be hot or cold, not not lukewarm, because because you're lukewarm makes me want to vomit. It's not a great great word, but vomit you out of my mouth. You know what God is saying is, you stop straddling the fence. If you're for me, be for me, and if you're against me, be against me. This is not a loose relationship." Y'all remember those days back, some of you adults, remember those days, men, where you had the define, the relationship talk with your significant other, right? It was that one date that you stared lovingly into her eyes, or maybe she stared, or he stared lovingly into your eyes, ladies, and y'all determined, okay, maybe this is a little bit more serious, right? You define the relationship. That's what this text is. It's the, the DTR of, 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 of the covenant. Let's define the relationship that we have with God. One, one author said, a covenant made with God should be regarded not as restrictive, but as protective. Think about an umbrella. I'm standing here holding my umbrella. I thought about bringing one up here, right? The umbrella is the covenant relationship I have with God. And when I'm living in full obedience to God underneath this umbrella, there is protection by God's hand because I'm walking in obedience with him. That does not mean life will be all perfect. It does not mean that. But it does mean that my relationship with God is secure through Jesus Christ. And even in trials, he will give me his perfect peace in the midst of that storm, right? The problem is this. We want to step outside under from underneath this covenant umbrella, don't we? We want to live our life, our casual association with God. We're going to come to church on Sundays. We're going to come to church on Wednesdays when it's convenient to do so. Every now and then we'll, we'll do something big, right? We'll, we'll tip God a little bit and we'll, everything will be fine. But we don't live under the covenant umbrella of God, right? So this umbrella is not just a, a showpiece. It's a protection as well. Number one, your worship God. Please fill in the blank. Following Christ is not... A contractual agreement with God, but a covenant obedience to God. I'm afraid there's many people in churches everywhere, ours included, that have a contractual agreement with God. There was a moment that you felt a little convicted of your sin. You walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, but there was no change in your heart. You put your name on a membership card, the church voted you in, and you are a member of a church. But you are not a member of the kingdom of God. That is a contractual agreement. And it's no wonder that when things get tough, your, your, your faith gets rocked, right? A preacher, you're being mean. I'm not being mean, but this is the, this is the concern of every preacher every Sunday morning. We look out into to, to the congregation and we think, how many are really born again? And how many are playing games? How many have the contractual agreement? How many are walking in covenant obedience to God? Now, I'm not, again, I'm not questioning your faith in a sense. If you have a, a genuine faith, if you repent of your sin and turn your faith to Christ and praise God, you're part of that covenant obedience, and I walk with you, brothers, in joy. But if that's not you, check your relationship, this defined relationship this morning. One author commentary I've been using a lot says, this moment is made a, made a promise of responsive holiness for the people marked by obedience to God's law. So it's a responsive holiness, corporate holiness. So you know what? We will walk in the law of the Lord because we realize the beauty of the law of the Lord is to show us who God is and align our life to the holiness of God, right? And so there's a, there's a complete corporate response to the holiness of God and the holiness of the people, right? John MacArthur says of obedience, obedience is the only validation of your salvation, I'll say it again. Obedience is the only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you really recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. Obedience. Well, it's not church membership. It's not church attendance. Now, please come to church, right? Otherwise, I'm just preaching to chairs, right? I'll still be preaching to chairs. But it's not that. It's it's our, are we walking with God every day? Amen? Are we actually, is this actually a a, a life-changing relationship, or it's just a contractual agreement. When it's comfortable, I'll do it. When it's not, I won't. John 14:15 Jesus says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." James 1:22 says, "But be doers of the word and not hearers only because you deceive yourselves." And here's the other side of the coin. i you are know, talking about you know, modern-day Christianity. By, by us thinking, please be understanding here. By us thinking that simply just an emotional response to Christ and, and a little prayer without no life change is enough, we deceive ourselves thinking that we're good when we're really not good. Woo, preacher, you said that out loud. I did say that out loud. We're good because we come to church. We're good because we go to Sunday school. We're good because I, I, I prayed that prayer. But you didn't mean that prayer. And there's been no, listen, you have no Holy Spirit inside of you. And you know that, right? And you're wondering why this religion is so dead inside of you. Because it's never been alive inside of you, church. Woo. Should go on vacation more. Augustine said this cost of obedience is small compared with the cost of disobedience. I think what our early church fathers said, the small, the, the, the cost of disobedience is eternity in hell for those who don't walk with Christ. And am I saying you can lose your salvation by no means? By no means. But I am saying if it was never real, it can't be lost, you're still lost. So it goes on. Verse, let's go number two on your worship guides. God's law. Is, you see this in the text, features God's love emphasizing his mercy. God's law features God's love emphasizing God's mercy. Verse 30. Now we get into the nuances of what they're really recommitting to, okay? And there's really three different areas. You may want to just put this in the bottom note. There's really three different areas of nuances. And they deal with the same tendencies that we have today. Now, stop, stop thinking about, okay, Jewish culture, Old Testament, Old Covenant. I want you to think about current day. What are our biggest tendencies as God's people? What do we tend to stray in? Okay? All three of them are really listed here. First, family. We have a tendency to compromise. Second, there's a faith. We, we have a trust to truly trust God. We have a, a tendency to, to, to more care about ourselves and trust ourselves than, than God's goodness, right? And finally, you see oh, finances. We don't trust that God is good and capable of taking care of, of us. We have a tendency towards greed. All of these things are really the core of the issues with the nation of Israel. Now, the old covenant law, this law is 613 rules long, right? Now we know a lot of them as the Ten Commandments and they're broken out in the other different commandments and stuff. But 613 rules. But if you really want to boil down to the nuts and bolts of really what really caused the nation of Israel to stray away from God, it's these areas right here. Let me just show you the, the three big areas, and they're going to recommit ourselves to these areas. Impli- impl- the implications is this. They're really re- reaffirming the whole law, but this is the problem, right? Uh, y'all, y'all I've, I've asked this before. How many of y'all would say you're really good rule keepers? Really good rule keepers. you got a few people who are really good rule keepers. of boys to y'all. The rest of you, is, if you're not a good rule keeper, will you raise your hand? This is like church participation. You can, you can raise your hand. We're Baptists, I know, but you can do this. Okay, all right? Most of us are not good at this, right? I have a heavy foot. I drive too fast sometimes, right? So sometimes we, we push boundaries a little bit, right? And as a result, we break the law. We're all guilty of breaking that law. But thanks be to God. God simplified it through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus did what we were incapable of doing. He was completely perfect in every aspect of the law. Sinless. Paid our sin debt that we owed because of his sinlessness and his deity. And then rose from the grave. So that it's not, listen, carefully, this is not rule keeping. This is about grace giving about faith in Jesus Christ to take care of our insufficiencies, church. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 30. Here's, here's the nuts and bolts. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, if you're casually reading this text, if you open your Bible, it's like, well, that's just mean. I'm a, I'm a father of a preteen daughter. I can't mention her not by name because I'm supposed to pay her money if I mention her by name, right? But at some point soon, there's going to be some boys... They already probably are that like her. Okay, it's terrifying. If you have teenage daughters out there, I'm terrified for you, and I'm terrified with you right now. Okay, right? This this almost seems like well, this is this is a dad saying, you know what? Ain't nobody good enough for my baby. Amen. Ain't nobody. I got no problem going back to prison for you. Right? You know, right? Yeah. I've always joked when Bethany starts dating, I've I've got this. I, there, I owe you money. All right. So. There, when Bethany starts dating, I already have a three-step rule for, for whoever begins taking my daughter out. Number one, I will be cleaning my gun, okay? That's just obvious. Cleaning my gun. It will be there on the table when we have the talk, okay? N- number two, uh, there's a deposit to take my daughter out. Like, what are you talking about? A deposit to take your daughter? Right now, it's $100. Inflation, right now, at this rate, it might be two or $300. I don't know, right? But that proves to me that you've thought through this, all right? This is not a whim idea, but you thought, and if you treat her right, I will gladly give your money back. I don't want your money. But if you don't treat her right and get her back on time at the house, then I'm keeping your money and I'm giving it to her because she had to put up with your sorry butt. Okay? Anyway. (laughs) Sorry. Number three. Number three. I'm not endorsing the show, obviously, but uh, y'all remember the show, Dr. Huxtable. He, put, he had a boy that pursued after one of his daughters. In fact, was getting too close to one of his daughters. He had these two apples on the table. and had a big butcher knife underneath the table. And he said, hey, this is my daughter. This is my precious gift right here, and I love her dearly. And uh, she's, she's my baby girl, and he, this is her, and this is you. And I understand as people grow up, they get closer, and the apples get closer together. And uh, I, I, I get that completely. And at some point, you know, months, years down the road, you know, you might get real close. and There, there might be that moment where you hold her hand or, or you know, or there might be a small little, little kiss or whatever. But let me make it very clear. This, this is my baby. This is you. If this ever happens, you put the apple back down, big butcher knife right through. That's happening to every boy who will date my daughter. You understand that? Noted. All right. This text, back to the text. This text is not about a dad begrudgingly giving his daughter away. This is about the old covenant law that says God's people will not intermarry with not God's people. Like God's people will marry only God's people because there's a familiar relationship that's there. It's a preserving of the Christian faith or the Old Testament faith in this case that's there. It's a marriage issue. It's a home issue. It's it's echoed in one of the contemporaries, Malachi chapter 2, verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, has married the daughter of a foreign God. Verse 14, that same text says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is in your companion and your wife by covenant, do ye not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. The point is this, that we'll raise up children of faith. We have a, a really significant problem today. And the problem is this, in the, in the home, we are not passing faith along. We're too busy with other things that we are not passing our faith down to our children. Why does children's ministry, youth ministry, preschool ministry matter so much in a church? Because that's the next generation. And if we don't give them faith, we don't pass along the biblical faith, they're not going to pass it on to their children and their children and their children. You with me? We wonder why our culture is the way it is. We've been been neglecting this for a while. We've compromised in the home. Number three, Christian marriage should be the loudest, most visible picture of the gospel in our culture. Nobody said amen. Amen. Christian marriage should be the loudest, most visible picture of the gospel in our culture. And it's not. Christian marriages act like other marriages. There's no recognizable difference between the two. Now, I'm going to read a little bit in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, if you were here on Wednesday night, we talked a little about this text a little bit in Colossians as well, uh, about the relationship of a wife and a husband This is beautiful stuff. So Ephesians chapter 5, the general principle is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of the gospel, we submit to one another. Men, we really like verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, you submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Amen, men? (laughs) Yeah. But if you miss verse 21, you can get a really egotistical, arrogant, uh, sexist view of verse 22. The idea is actually that we all submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, right? And this is a picture of it, wives submitting to their husband, because he's the spiritual leader. And by the way, that puts so much more responsibility on us guys. Like we don't understand how much responsibility that is. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and as himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Husbands then love your wives. With this caveat, listen carefully, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that's a whole nother level of love that he might sanctify her the purpose of marriage is to sanctify your spouse it's not not to feel good emotions it's not to, to be so wrapped up in romeo and juliet kind of romance it's to prepare each other for a deeper relationship with christ that marriage is a picture of the gospel it's a beautiful, it's a covenant. In fact, it is the one humanly covenant that most represents the relationship that we have through God, with God through Christ. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. But it's just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And he goes back, and Paul, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, Genesis 2.24, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a mystery, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a whole couple other sermons right there we don't have time for. Recently, my wife put me on a, a, a podcast, a marriage podcast. It's called Fierce Marriage. If you ever got a chance to listen to Fierce Marriage, it's fantastic. Write it down. Fierce Marriage podcast. If you're a podcast listener, it's great. Encourages your faith. Encourages your Christian marriage. This is one of the uh, statements that I heard in one of those podcasts. Covenant love says, I do even if you don't. And I will even if you don't. And that's what we're talking about in our relationship with God. And this is what why marriage is a picture of that same Covenant, the issue, the first of the three issues they mention here in this recommitment, is marriage. We're not, we're not doing marriage the way God wants us to do marriage. Everybody knows Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14, Paul says, "Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Teenagers. You have no business dating or marrying someone who's not a Christian if you're a Christian. None, None. Don't, don't this idea of, well, I'm going to missionary date them. <laughs> you ever heard that expression before? Missionary date. I'm going to get around them, and I'm going to show them Jesus, and they'll get, they'll, get, they'll get saved, and it'll be great. It'll be fine. It does not work. So if you're a Christian, you have no business dating or marrying somebody who's not a Christian. Christian marriage, it's not about a husband and wife. It's a husband and a wife and God, right? You take God out of the question, like, What's going to happen to marriage? Can people who are not Christians survive in marriage? Absolutely they can. By some of the same principles of Christian marriage, they apply to their life, they can survive. But it certainly will not flourish the way God intends it to flourish if there's not Jesus Christ the center of the marriage. That's the the tendency. The nation of Israel has, has gone outside the faith relationship. And are marrying with other religions, other foreign beliefs now that are infiltrating and they're compromising the faith—not just the, the the spouse who married, but now the children, right? And so the 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 belief, the faith in God, is being diluted and compromised little by by little. And so the covenant says, no, 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 we're going back to marrying marrying just people who have faith in Christ. Now, yeah, but sometimes the tendency to look at Israel and think, well, man, they're all one big family—that means you're marrying your cousin, right? This is not Arkansas. This is not Mississippi. That's not what they're talking about. nation of Israel was a very big nation by now, right? I, I moved uh, from Oklahoma to Alabama when I was 12 years old. I joke sometimes I had to move from Rogers County, Oklahoma, to Alabama because I was related to about half the county somehow. I could not marry my cousin. I'm thankful for that, right? That is the truth. nation of Israel is large enough. There will surely be adequate provision for a spouse stay within the, the family of faith. Verse 31, Nehemiah 10. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So, so what's this about? So, okay, the first one's about marrying who God says to marry in the covenant. The second one is about the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath about? The Sabbath is not a legalistic thing. It is a, it is a perspective thing. It is, it, is a, it is a day set aside to reappoint and reorient ourselves to rest. One of the, the biggest oppositions we have for the Sabbath is well, we're not, we're not Jewish. But I'm going to tell you something the older I get, the more I realize we need to have Sabbath. Now, it may not be Saturday as Jews practice Sabbath in the same way, but we need to appoint times in our life where we rest. You with me? We rest. Uh, the nation of Israel got to the point where well, we're not really working. But those other vendors are bringing food in, we'll go buy from them. And so they're doing the work. We're just buying, right? So we're caveat, like we, we, we got to buy on a little check in the law, right? No, you're still breaking the law. The Sabbath law, the Old Testament. For us, we are breaking the law if we don't rest. Number four, rest... Some of y'all need to write this down and hang this up someplace. Rest is not a suggestion, but a command. Rest is not a suggestion in the Bible, but a command. I've heard the expression, I've even said the expression, well, I'll rest one day when I die. You know what? You're taking it off the back end if you don't do it in the front end, right? We're aware of that. We live in a culture that says every moment of our day should be maximized so we lose nothing. Having no understanding that we lose everything if we don't rest in the midst of it all. Rest is not a sign of weakness, people. Rest is a sign of wisdom. Last, last week, I was with the beach with my family. Normally it normally takes me several days to unwind. It was strange this year. About two, three hours in, I was unwound. It was nice. Discovering that God needs us all to rest, pot calling kettle black. All of us need to figure that out. I think about Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty eight. Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are labor and a heavy, laden, and I will give you rest." He's talking about is these restraints of the old law, but I think also what Jesus is referring to is times of stepping back and refocusing. John Piper, I'll quote him a couple more times this morning. John Piper says, setting apart a day of rest testifies to a self-reliant world that our work does not save us or define us. God does. (laughs) Your job, men, listen carefully. Your job does not define you. Ladies, your job does not define you. Christ does. Stop giving every waking moment of your day to your job. Because the moment you die, your job is going to be in the paper someplace and somebody else will have it before your service. Your job is not the most important thing in this life. Christ is. He's the only one who saves and the only one who defines our life. Elizabeth Elliott says, rest is a weapon given to us by God. The enemy hates it because he wants you stressed and occupied. Piper said this, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. It is wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by sometimes doing less. Um, well, does that mean that I need to, to, to you know, take the whole day and rest all day, sleep all day? Hey, if, if, if God gives you an opportunity to do that, well, praise God. Enjoy the rest, right? But don't add more and more and more on your schedule when you know you should add less and less and less and less. Amen? Rest. It's necessary. Verse 32, we'll be quick now. Okay, hang in there. Almost there. Y'all with me? Y'all awake? Mother's Day lunch is coming. Hang in. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give. Woo, uh uh-oh, here we go. Here comes the preacher talking about giving. A yearly, a third part of of a shekel for the service of the house of God. So to give to the ministry of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, we we'll are to read through the rest of the text. The regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits. Of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring the house of our Lord our God to the priests and minister in the house of our Lord, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as written in law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough. I'm emphasizing the first. You hearing it? And our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, the priests, the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of God to the chambers of the storehouses. You hear the repetitive words? The people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister in the house, the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect. The house of our God. So the, so the third issue was, okay, so it was marriage and it was the Sabbath or the rest issue, right? A third issue was people weren't giving. The law told them to give. It's not by accident that over the course of these verses you hear the word first and firstborn, tithe, contributions. What are we talking about? We're talking about giving, biblical giving. Number five, giving is the expression of active faith, living in submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's giving. Giving is the expression of active faith, trusting that God can do more with whatever you got left than you can do with the whole amount. Amen? Living in submission to the Lordship of Christ every single day. Malachi chapter 3, or Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe... In the storehouses, there may be food in my house. Now, people, is the church really the the temple? Well, the church is where God's people gather to do gospel ministry, right? And so, in one sense, no. In one sense, absolutely. Jesus never disqualifies the tithe. In fact, in one point where he is lambasting the Pharisees of his day for, for basically being legalist, he tells him he doesn't disqualify the tithe. He said, but you also just you should also embody grace, immersing, compassion with the tithe. So, so, what is the tithe? The tithe is the first 10% of all you got, of all your income. The first 10 firstborn, first fruits, you, you get it in the text. Not, not what's left over, the first, right? That should be the, the normative giving. Like, preacher, why you preach so hard on tithing? Because it's right there. And I hate preaching on money. I hate it. Let's just be honest with you. God's word says a lot about money and giving and faithfulness. And it is listen carefully. It is not about the dollar amount. Not about that. It's about your obedience to follow what God has commanded in His word. It's about faith, not budgets. And here, here's here's the foolproof. Listen, I very rarely preach on giving, except when it comes up in a text. And for the last seven years, we've brought lots in the storehouse. God has blessed us like crazy. So listen, bottom line is this, let's just be faithful in that area. And God will take that and use it and multiply it. Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. John Piper that's what I was going to reference a couple times, said giving in a regular, disciplined, generous way up to and beyond the tithe is simply good sense in view of the promises of God. It's Just good sense. Andrew Murray said, the world asks, what does a man own? Christ asks, how does he use it? Woo, that changes it, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 9 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Who's the Lord of your heart? <laughs> Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I've often said this as a pastor. I would love for our offering. You know we used to pass the plates before COVID? Y'all remember that? And there was, like, it was music playing in the background, and we passed it, and it was like every now and then you hear something, chink, in the, in the offering plate, right? you know, like, who did that? Who did that? Right, you know? And you're supposed to not think about that, but y'all do, right? Right? Now we have these giving boxes, and sometimes I like them, sometimes I hate them. I, I wish we had that, that, that opportunity to be joyful givers. It would be great if we could, when, when y'all walk by, I'm giving boxes, when I walk by the giving boxes, and I'm going to give my tithe, my I'm going to put it in there like, woo, praise Jesus yeah, I got the gift, right? Wouldn't that be great? I'm not so sure that's not biblical. God loves a cheerful giver. Give, and it'll be given to you. Luke six thirty-eight says, good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. That does not mean if you bless God, he's going to give you a million dollars. That's not what it says. But with the measure you use it, it'll be measured back to you. God is more interested in our stewardship than our dollar amount. Amen? Now I want to briefly finish this message with just a turn. Okay, just hear me out. Because I wanted to make sure that we see the gospel in this. We talked about family. We talked about rest. We talked about giving. But we got to get the gospel in this. The old covenant that's being renewed here is still imperfect. You with me? It's still imperfect. In fact, by chapter 13 of Nehemiah, guess what? They break the covenant again. And we want to pick on them. Why would you do that? Well, we do the same thing. Today, you may recommit your life to Christ. And I pray that you do every Sunday. You, in your heart, recommit your life to Christ. By tomorrow, you're going to blow it again, aren't you? Right? Let's not give it an excuse, but the reality is this. We are incapable of keeping the full law of God. Amen? And therefore, we need a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah said, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them. Hang on and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what is Jeremiah prophesying about? Jesus, who would die for our sin, to take our iniquity away from him. By his spirit coming inside of us, we now have the, the ability to live lives that's pleasing to God. This is the new covenant. Hebrews nine fifteen. therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. I guess the point of this is I want to bring you back to this. The point is this. Yes, we, we fail miserably in our sin. But Christ is greater than our sin. One last quote from John Piper. He been a lot of our reading this week. He said, The new covenant is purchased by the blood of Christ, effected by the Spirit of Christ, and appropriated by faith in Christ. That's the new covenant. So if you're here today, you're like, man, I just, uh, that's, that was me. I, I broke the, the covenant. I've been breaking God's law. I've been sinning like crazy. And I, I'm feeling guilty right now. What do I do? I would tell you to confess your sin and repent and recommit your life to Christ. He is the only one to help you walk in the will and the way of God. You can't do it on your own. Not enough Oprah, not enough self-help. You can't do it on your own. You need Christ. Only Christ can help you live a life that pleases God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the preaching of your word was faithful to the text. I pray, Lord, that as we see our tendencies, as Israel saw their tendencies, Lord, help us to recommit our life, Lord, to gospel marriage, to gospel rest, and gospel giving. Lord, help us, Lord, every day to affirm that you are the Lord of our life. We are not the masters of our life. You are. God, change us. Renew us by your Spirit. Help us to recommit ourselves to you today. Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, They're lost. Well, they've been breaking the covenant over and over and over again. Their sin has separated them from you. And there is no hope on their own deeds that they'll get back. But right now, in this solemn moment, your spirit would tell them, come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ for your salvation. New covenant work of Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Let it change our lives. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand with me this morning. I'll be available at the front. Altar will be available as well if you'd like to pray. Recommit your life to Christ. I would encourage you to, at the very least, right there in your chair.